Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Happy Friday, sun, uh, sunny, finally sunny Friday. Feels like spring after the Colorado Rockies get a remarkable 1-0 win. We'll talk about that a little later in the program as uh, well. Somewhat unusual, only the 12th at the Coors Field history. Uh, obviously, unique on opening day and uh, well, good performance I, I, there. I had said before I read the same thing you read about the number of one nothing games that have been at Coors Field that you could count them on two hands, and it takes... A little more than two hands, but not much more than two hands. You yeah. have the one to nothing games. And the last one to nothing game, I believe, was played on July 4th of 2019. So on opening day and on July 4th, uh, you see games at Coors Field sometimes that you're not used to seeing. And uh, the one to nothing win on opening day yesterday advertised not only the skill of Freeland, but uh, Lawrence coming on and throwing only 19 pitches in an inning and a third. What did I tell everybody here last week? I know. <laughs> exactly. That's Pat the guy. yourself on the back. That's the guy, as long as he can stay healthy, because he is throwing some unhittable stuff right now. But congratulations to the Rockies getting it done on opening day. Of course, they'll have another one today with that same Nationals team and see if they can climb a little closer back to uh, 500. But it is early for a team that is not going anywhere, not the same situation for the Colorado Avalanche. They take care of business last night uh, like you would uh, expect them to against the Sharks. They do jump out. Uh, they, they really take off at the second. It was 1-1 after one, but then, of course, the four goals in the second period, they're off to the races. Miko Rantanen with a hat trick, 50-goal uh, season, his first, 52 goals on the season, the second most in Avalanche uh, history, not complete franchise history, including the uh, Nordiques. That's all sorts of Michel Goulet seasons, but second to only Joe Sackett with 54, uh, he might have an opportunity to catch it. But before we get into Ranton and just the avalanche themselves, find the, themselves with a very enviable position because the wild loss to the, the Penguins, as we thought was possible, the stars are tied with them at 100 points, but the avalanche have a game in hand, have 100 points, and now do control their destiny in the central with only a handful of games left. And that seems pretty remarkable given the way that this season has gone with the injuries, with who's injured, with how long, with how hard it's been to get rhythm. Uh, tremendous season. And you've pointed out before right here, Sandy, how I, I get that he's not going to win it. But how Jared Bednar is not in the mix for the Jack Adams Coach of the Year Award, I have no idea. It's his best coaching job ever. I, I agree. include last year because it's a regular season award. I include last year's regular season, and I understand they won, what, 56 games last year, 119 points. He's done a better coaching job this year because this team needed tender, loving care, but also a kick in the pants from time to time. And he has beautifully balanced, um, unlike his counterpart uh, leading the Nuggets, I think, Bednar is beautifully balanced the idea of nurturing the players through some very tough stretches this year, but also challenging them and even admonishing them at exactly the right times. And he is obviously in action, at least subscribed to the idea that you have two or three chances a year to go after your players a little bit, but it can't be more than that. And especially with a team that's played shorthanded, virtually all year, continues to play shorthanded, not only with respect to the guys who've been hurt for a long period of time, 
but now Kale McCarr is out again. I don't know if it's good news or bad news that they are at least saying it is a new injury. It is not the recurrence of an old one. It's a lower body injury. Uh, He's had at least one of those this year, but they say this is a different injury. I'm not sure that's good or bad. I'm not sure what the difference is between day-to-day and out indefinitely either. Um, He's officially listed as day-to-day, but there was some talk last night on the telecast about his being out indefinitely. I would assume that means he might not be available uh, tomorrow night for the Los Angeles Kings uh, at uh, whatever they're calling that arena now. Is it still Crypto.com? It is. Amazingly For some enough. reason. I guess yeah. they paid enough at the time. That I, I guess they I guess you just get yeah. to keep it. Uh, but in any case, uh, even the Kings have slumped off. Now, they, they're now in third place, and they're fighting to stay there. They're tied because the Seattle's coming up from behind, yeah. and uh, the Avalanche have a much better winning percentage. I say much better. Uh, they're at 649, and the Kings are at 633. Uh, the Kings are only 5-4-1 and one now in their last 10 games. So tomorrow night's game actually is winnable. Uh, Los Angeles has handed it to the Avs a couple of times this year already. Uh, maybe the Avs can summon up uh, the same sort of energy and purposefulness with which they've generally played the last 37 games, and we've been through this before, but the Avalanche, compared to other teams in the league, every other team in the league over the last 37 games, 27-7-3 and three for 57 points. Only two teams are better. Edmonton, 26-5-6. and six. 58 points, and Boston, 29-7-1, 59 points. Those are the top three, 59, 58, 57. That's the company the Avalanche are keeping, and throughout the season, they have won eight straight now on the road. They have the third-best road record in the National Hockey League behind Boston and New Jersey. Uh, Boston, 29-8-2 on the road. New Jersey, 27-8-4. The Avalanche now a rather remarkable 26-11-1 on the road this year. A percentage of 697 at home, 21, 13, and 5, only a percentage of 603. So they are almost one game out of every 10 better on the road than they've been at home. And so it it gives the, uh, the impression that even if beyond the second round they don't have home ice, they end up playing, let's say, Vegas. Right. After the second round in the Western Conference Finals. They've been a better road team than they've been a home team this year. Not having home ice is not necessarily crippling. No. To the Colorado no. Avalanche chances in the Stanley Cup play. It is not, and they've proven it last year as well. For some reason in the NHL tonight, do not ask me why. There are no games. Right. Very Well, it's good Friday. I, and, and and the National League does not play games on Christmas Day or Good Friday. There you go. They don't. Okay, that that's, would be why. That's Thank their, you. See, I honestly did, I did no, not know good that. Friday. And so there you that's, go. That's so their, no games that's tonight. That's their idea. Now, why they play so many games on uh, NCAA basketball tournament nights. Right. That's a bit of a mystery to me. The NBA generally steps aside uh, during the NCAA basketball also tournament games on, on game nights. Sunday in the NHL anyway. Right. So, right. Okay, but whatever. I, I understand <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, but, the uh, but on, on Good Friday and on Christmas Day, the, the NHL thing. takes a holiday. Well, that means the games on uh, Saturday are, are the ones that, of course, we'll be paying attention to, and everyone will be in action. The Avs play the Kings, as we've talked about. But the Stars, the Avs' closest pursuers, tied at 100 points, take on those same Golden Knights. Golden Knights come to Dallas. That's uh, obviously a very, very difficult game for the Stars. And when you're talking about the uh, Wild, they face the Blues. 
Blues already eliminated, but not one of the worst teams in the West. The Blues have been playing well lately with again, the pressure off. If you're six the, two and two in the last ten, do the Avs. You don't worry about the Wild. You're ahead of the Wild. Yeah, just keep keep winning that's and and right. do your handle your own business, right. and things will go the way they go. They've now got the lead ahead of the Wild, so they find themselves in a, in a, in a good position with only a handful of games to go. Obviously, the last time the Avs had an opportunity to make a statement and take charge of the West, it was some it was a bad game by the, their star players. Just bad across the across the board. Not last night. Obviously, Rantanen with the uh, the hat trick. Uh, Nathan McKinnon with four points, a goal, and three different assists. Of course. By uh, the way, at McKinnon's been so hot. We neglected to mention that when he scored an overtime the other night, that was point number one hundred. First time in his mm-hmm. career he's hit a hundred points. We didn't even mention that because it, it is such a given that he get bam, there. The way they didn't even take note of it, <laughs> exactly. and now he's already well past a hundred points, as you suggested. And uh, listen, the second half of the year he's on a pace somewhere between one hundred thirty and one hundred thirty-five yeah, points. It's, it's McDavid territory. It really, I, has I mean, been. he really has been Connor McDavid. Yeah, uh, every bit the equivalent of Connor McDavid. Um, since the All-Star break, to be sure, and even if you measure over the second half of the season, uh, counting in a few games that he missed uh, on a, a per-game basis, that's the pace he has set. And again, the number one player in the National Hockey League and even strength points per game. They get a pair of goals from Ben Myers, the former college free agent out of uh, Minnesota. Myers puts in a pair. They get- and, and they were good workmanlike uh, yes, goals. Nieto set them up. And yep, uh, with those assists, exactly you know, right. and these Gerard are, these, these are fourth well. line, these are fourth line goals. And uh, Sam Gerard, along with others, I believe was a plus five. last Correct. Uh, Rantanen, Gerard, and uh, I think that was it. Yeah. Rantanen and Gerard. Oh, sorry. Devon Taves. Yeah. Uh, plus five. Gerard and Taves as a defense pairing. Plus five. And, and three points. Bednar, three who again, unlike his counterpart at Ball Arena, is willing to uh, alter line combinations and defense pairings. He put Gerard with Taves in a third period of a game recently, and he sort of kept them together with Makar out now. And, I mean, plus five for the tandem last night is amazing. And I get that it's San Jose. I understand. Plus five is plus five. Plus five is an extraordinary... Uh, remarkable performance, uh, almost unprecedented uh, for a defenseman, especially a four, but even a defenseman to go plus five in a game against anybody is amazing. And I, it, it, to me, when Gerard's with Taves, as opposed to Byron, that's nothing to do with Byron. It, it's just with Taves. Taves used to play with McCarr. So Taves is usually a little more restrained in terms of his, uh, and by avalanche standards, he'd play that way with any other team in the league, virtually any other team in the league, and it'd be extraordinary. You, you consider him every bit as much of an offensive defenseman as as anybody else in the league. But on this team playing with McCarr, he hangs back a little more. And I think with Gerard, he provides a steadying uh, influence. And Gerard has just played better with tapes. Now, when McCarr comes back, McCarr goes with Taves. Of course. Not oh, yeah, you're, not, you're not breaking that up. But no. maybe Manson comes back so that Manson can play with Byram, and then you take Gerard from the first defense pairing, where he's playing against the other team's best players, to the third defense pairing, where he's playing against third and fourth line guys, 
And I think you'll find as a result, playing with presumably Eric Johnson, that his game will get better. And as of right now, the defense pairings, at least for last night, were Gerard and Taves, Jack Johnson and Byram, and McDermott and Eric Johnson as the third uh, tandem. But uh, that uh, new hook Myers Nieto line, his fourth line last night, very productive. Extremely productive. And, and that's obviously the kind of secondary scoring you're going to need because the Avalanche is as tremendous as their top end talent is. They're human. They're going to have certain nights where they're off. And of course, they're going to be the focus of every team's defense. So finding that secondary scoring is going to be valuable. We've seen Malgan do that at times. I think Lars Eller has, has chipped it here and there, maybe not as much as they'd like. Uh, we've seen. Yeah. But it, that 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 seems to be an adjustment that they're willing to be patient. I think so. Uh, in I don't think he's exercising with with Eller and Eller is a penalty killer. Uh, has been okay, nothing great. I, I, I thought he'd be a little better uh, on the penalty kill. Uh, but again, they're only using him on the second penalty killing unit. Confer uh, and Nishushkin as the two forwards on the first penalty killing unit have been excellent. And then you have Taves and Gerard again together unless one of them is penalized on the first penalty killing unit. And on the second, you have Eller with Cogliano and their line mates, and they seem to work well uh, with each other. And then you have Jack Johnson, uh, at least for now, uh, alongside Eric Johnson, I believe, on uh, the second uh, uh, penalty kill unit. Uh, Power play continues to look good, but what's impressed me is their five-on-five play recently has been superb uh, and the top guys are that that's how you get to plus five if you're yeah. at two or three of you your goals or power play goals you don't get pluses for those right yeah that's worth noting you don't get a plus for that uh, so i mean that the, the even strength play has been very very good the abs now 47 24 and six with 100 points on the season and a couple of games now the back-to-backs coming up on saturday against the kings and then sunday against anaheim the the interesting part about that is it might be, might be an opportunity for Pavel Francouz to get Could back be. in Talked between the pipes. Yeah, so uh, Jared Bednar yesterday prior to the game said uh, Francouz basically is, the quote was, ready to go depending on how he feels. And that was and, more of a game shape I, type comment. I know he hasn't played a lot, but let's give some credit to Johansson. Who who of, of late as the backup has been pretty good. He's been fine Yeah, as the backup. Yeah, I, I think that's and that's all. Look for a backup goaltender. He does not great have if you have a great one. The truth uh-huh. is, you want one that's fine that will keep you in the game and and, and at least it, in the last. Take note of the shots so on goal last night by San Jose. Twenty three. Okay. Yeah. What do we say several weeks ago? You said twenty to twenty five shots, especially against the weaker teams. Twenty twenty five shots on goal per game. It, you'll win almost every time. Yeah. You'll win almost every time, and your goaltender again. Is not that busy. He doesn't have to play great. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to play when you're not getting a lot of action, but 35 to 40 shots, which they had been giving up even during this 37-game run they've been on, they've been pretty consistent in limiting teams to 20, 25 shots. I mean, that's 7-8 per period, right? Mm-hmm. 7-8 per period. Yeah. That's not a lot of shots, uh, but 7-8 per Period. You don't have to play lockdown defense. You can even, uh, although their penalty kill is, is again, I'd like to see them get to 80% and maybe a little higher. Uh, they aren't quite there. I don't believe at the moment uh, they're around 79% in penalty killing effectiveness. But, you know, the power play is great. 
five on five, second half of the year, just fine, and especially lately. And you saw the top line get all those five on five points last night. Uh, th- those are uh, those are five on five points, right? Yeah. Almost exclusively uh, last night for Ranton and McKinnon. And whoever plays with Ranton and McKinnon, whether it's Nashushkin, who played on the second line on right wing last night, or Rodriguez, who, who off right. and on played left wing on the first line, with kind of alternating with Nashushkin the last few weeks, they seem to come alive. Can't understand how. Yeah. Uh, playing with McKinnon and Rent. And what a privilege uh, that is. And it also mitigates the absence of Landeskog because it demonstrates at the level at which uh, McKinnon and Ranton are currently playing, you and I could play left wing and we'd be okay. Rodriguez had an assist and was a plus four and took no shots. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, a plus four game. I wonder plus four game with no shots. when the last time was a forward had a plus four game or better with no shots. No shots whatsoever. And, and, uh, and, and actually, you know, give, give credit to Rodriguez in that understanding that, Hey, um, the other guy should be taking the shots. Won't be more than happy to, to take that pressure off them. And listen, not to say that McKinnon and Ranton are one-way guys by any means. They're both excellent defensively, as was the previous Avalanche 50-goal scorer, Milan Hayduk. Part of his mm-hmm. game, I mean, we talked about, because Bob Hartley had the great line, he has magical hands. We talked about Hayduk's hands. Uh, Ranton has great hands, too, obviously. So does McKinnon. But people forget what a good defensive forward Milan Hayduk became. And Alex Tange, too, perhaps to a slightly lesser extent. But Milan Hayduk, in his last few years in the league, I wanted him out there more for his defensive abilities and his play without the puck than I did for his play with the puck. Because naturally, his offensive numbers did decline some, but he was always a responsible defensive player. And I would say the same thing right now about McKinnon and Renton, who in the last three or four years have improved dramatically without the puck. Yeah, and you, you you mentioned the penalty kill for the Avs. You're exactly right, 79.1%, but that puts them 16th in the NHL. Yeah, so middle of the pack. It's, very, it's not terrible. very mediocre. 16. It, it's not terrible. And a 32 team. Now, to be fair, you know, the difference is uh, number two is Carolina at 83.9. Boston's at a superhuman 87.1. That's but, sick. Uh, I mean, I mean it, my goodness, even when you get it? the power play against Boston, you generally can't do anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really ridiculous. But, I mean, you know, the, the Avs are... Eighty-three uh, percent puts you in the top five. The answer seventy-nine percent puts them in the middle, uh, the middle of the whole pack. But didn't they get better in the playoffs idea. last year they on the did. penalty kill? And in the power play uh, right now, they have sitting at that twenty-four point nine percent. That is good for fifth in the. That's entire. one out of four, and that's yeah. just fine. If you're yeah. a top five power play team, and you know, would you like to be better than middle of the pack? Yeah. Would you like to be in the top ten? Absolutely. But somewhere between ten and fifteen would would be fine it'd be over 80 percent mm-hmm. i can tell you that and it right, would have to so, be yeah yeah abs uh, in that power play though of course uh one of the only four teams ahead of them 25 percent toronto 25.2 los angeles their opponent on saturday uh, tampa bay at 25.3 so they're not far off the leader in power play percentage you can probably guess who that is right yes that would be the edmonton oilers right. 32.6. They, they they have one out of every They three. have a power play reminiscent of the Montreal Canadiens vintage teams of the mid to late Don't 70s that won four straight Stanley against the Oilers. Well, yeah. Yo. Although, you go back to last year's Avalanche series with Edmonton, 
Edmonton, first of all, the Avalanche stayed out of the box. Second of all, when they were in the box, they did a hell of a job against the Edmonton Oilers in that four-game sweep. Yes. As a matter of fact, in the postseason last year, Edmonton held to 26% of the Avalanche throughout the entire playoffs in which they won the Stanley Cup, 32.8% on the power play. And their penalty kill during the last year's playoffs, as you pointed out, Sandy, a little better, 80.4. Didn't get better. So Anything north of 80 is fine. It's like the 2.50 goals against for a goaltender, 920 save percentage. If you're in that neighborhood, which Georgiev is, and actually in those two categories, Francois is a 2.53. They're both a 2.53 now and 9.19. Both of them, 2.53 and 9.19. And you brought up Johansson. Small sample size. He's been in three games, but his record? 2-0-0, 2.1 goals against and a yeah. 9.32 save percentage. Uh, <laughs> more than adequate, That's your quite third frankly. Goaltender. Yeah, it's your third, so good sign there. The Denver Broncos only weeks away from their draft. Obviously, there is work to be done. Should a trade occur to try to get more picks, we'll talk about it with from Mile High Sports. Bree Maestas next. Now more with Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Sandy, have you ever had the opportunity to go to Ireland? That's a weird question for Friday, but you've been there? Eight or nine different pubs in Ireland that I went. At some point, whoever was playing the guitar broke up this song. Yeah. This what? song. I have no idea why, but in, in, in and I was in multiple cities in Ireland. After like an hour in, in the pub, somebody breaks up this song. It's kind of like, uh, wasn't, wasn't there the a words. football game played this year? And I don't know if it was Wembley or, or Munich. And they played Sweet Caroline. Right. That's the song, Red Sox uh, theme song. And, uh, but, but I've heard popular this in, Boston, written by in, New Yorker. Okay. in areas <laughs> far removed from Denver, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And still to this day popular in Ireland. Don't ask me why. Yeah. Uh, we have an opportunity to bring on one of Mile High Sports' own. Of course, you're on the Let's Talk Broncos podcast and on Mondays right here, uh, right prior to this show. On the fan cave, Bree Maestas. And Bree, you can follow her on Twitter at Bree, M-A-E-S-T-A-S. 303, because she's old school like that. Bree, how's it going? Uh, going great. Thanks for asking. So happy to be here with you guys this afternoon. Thanks. And as, as we get closer to the draft and we're talking about, obviously, what the Broncos need to do, uh, we had heard the news from Sean Payton, who basically said George Payton's job is to pick up the phone and say that we're not trading Courtland Sutton. Let me just ask right <laughs> off the bat. Do you believe that's the case? You didn't tiptoe at all. There was no warm up. It was straight <laughs> into it. Are they trading Courtland Sutton or are they... <laughs> Uh, telling the truth. Are they bluffing or are they telling the truth about that? Oh my goodness. The hard hitting questions right here with Sandy and Sean. Listen, (laughs) this is why I'm here. There's pockets of Broncos country that I think would be perfectly content with the trade of wide receiver, uh, Cortland Sutton for draft capital. Uh, You know, it's no, it's no secret, right? The Broncos are low in draft picks. It's been a hot button conversation since the end of the 22 uh, season, but it's only been elevated. There's been a ton of talk 
even after they traded away Bradley Chubb, used that first-round pick to acquire Sean Payton, they sit at five. Okay, that's not great. That is all George Payton gets to try to assemble a roster for 2023. And the rumors, it's a lot of he said, she said, right, a couple of months that the idea is that the Broncos want to trade either Judy or Sutton. And then they've been adamant. They've come back, and Sean Payton said he went as far as saying point blank, we're not trading those players. So when it comes down to it, what are you hoping to achieve from that trade? Like, I have some thoughts and feelings about what you can actually get back from that trade. And and there's proof positive that it wouldn't be a a good idea or yield an ideal result. So I want to know from you guys, first and foremost, do you think they should? And then I can go into why I think they shouldn't. Well, I'll I'll answer that first. I I think they should do it. But I think what they believe is that they can get a first rounder or a second rounder, at least as part of a package for Cortland Sutton and I think that's wildly unrealistic and I think they know that's wildly unrealistic I guess uh, you know I'll let Sean comment on uh, whether a deal would make sense or not but I think it's Sean Payton's call and it isn't George Payton's call George Payton is the one sitting there with only five picks but I think Sean Payton's attitude about that is that that's sort of George Payton's problem and it, it isn't up to Sean Payton to uh uh, got the roster or even uh, a core player at a particular position just to help out George Payton and get him some extra picks, which uh, I think everybody understands won't be a first or a second. Right. But there may be a, direct, a directive from Sean Payton to be telling George Payton, hey, I need you to go get me uh, a center. I need you to go get me a running back that can contribute this year i need you to go get me certain things and he's going to want them now and to do that you're going to have to find a pick and so i think judy was always off the table because they'd never get a first in sutton's case to my mind if tim patrick looks like he's going to be healthy then i think you make the deal because we've already seen with sean payton's offense i think you've seen with the signings that they've made this team's going to go to more of a two tight end set power type of game in which payton's had success before that means you're not going to be playing three wide and so one of these wide receivers is extraneous. And it, to my mind, it's the one that's the most expensive. That's Cortland Sutton. And I, and I can see that. I think there's been a bevy of comparisons within Broncos country that Sutton and Patrick could be the same player or type of player. And I agree. They're both big bodied receivers, but I feel like their skill sets are so remarkably different that you could benefit from having both of them on the same team. When you talk about Cortland Sutton's um, contract overall, the overall value is pretty high up there in the top 20, but the guarantees are a lot less. So the benefits of keeping Sutton kind of make sense if he can continue to be Cortland Sutton, which is above average. But when you look at what you could be getting back, let's say you trade away your number two receiver for draft capital, trying to turn around and draft the same type of position there, there's no telling what you're going to get back. I think if the Broncos are in drafting purgatory, as it seems right now, and you've got depth in the room, in Callaway, Patrick being cleared to return, Judy, Hamler is being questionable, but you've got Brandon Johnson and LJ Humphrey. Making big swing moves really could yield less than ideal results. So I understand that you could get something back, but if you're liking to see a return of 1,000 yards and a handful of touchdowns like we were seeing pre-injury, last season's post-injury 800 yards and two touchdowns isn't too shabby when you're talking about amassing two end zone trips on what was like a miraculous drought for the Broncos in 2022. But, I just don't think you've got to see a return. But but a pushback on that, and fundamentally what you say is true, of course, but 60 catch per season, 800 yard per season 
two touchdown per season wide receivers grow on trees. They, they grow on trees. You can draft them in the fourth round. Uh, mm-hmm. You can certainly can draft them in the third round. And I, I know they say this isn't a great draft for wide receivers, but that's been Cortland Sutton's level of production on average in each of the last two years. He, he He's now more than two years removed from that injury. And, okay, 2021 production wasn't great, uh, especially late in the year. That's okay. Uh, maybe it takes a full year to recover. But last year, we we did not see a noticeable uptick in production. And also, we saw absolutely no rapport develop at any point between Russell Wilson and Cortland Sutton. At least in the final half dozen games, we did see a rapport develop between Russell Wilson and Jerry Judy. And, of course, mm-hmm. Tim Patrick didn't play at all last year. So there's no way of knowing what his rapport will be or won't be with Russell Wilson at that point. I, I just think it's it's six seven million dollars in savings on the cap uh, if if he's not on the roster, and that can be useful. And I, I just don't see the production being anything more than very very average. It would be different. It was seventy five to eighty five catches a year, uh, nine hundred to eleven hundred yards. But that hasn't been him for the last two years, and we're also not seeing the acrobatic stuff. We didn't see it last year, and that was two years after he sustained the injury. Totally fair, totally fair. I I don't have much of a rebuttal to that other than the fact that not going to see a whole lot of production out of your wide receivers when the quarterbacking is not up to snuff. Hopefully that does change a little bit. Excellent. Yeah. The quarterback was terrible. Yeah, and and Bree, we're talking with Bree Maestas from the uh, Fan Cave and our Let's Talk Broncos podcast right here on Mile High Sports. Let's let's go right into that. Uh, Sean Payton was hired in the short term to fix Russell Wilson because these guys are attached at the hip right now. The money makes it that way. Do you believe that you saw enough from Russell Wilson that there's that it can be salvageable? Do you believe that he can function in a Sean Payton-style offense? Because the whole idea of coming to Denver was let Russ Cook go three wide, let him do his thing. Uh, Sean Payton is already, based on the moves, completely shut that down. Yeah, I think the idea here is that you uh, made a, a lengthy and um, not cost-effective investment here uh, getting Russell Wilson. So with the hiring of Sean Payton, the offseason moves look like the best getting the best out of the current quarterback. So you got to assume the Broncos are going to be run heavy, run first, run often football team in 2023. I think you got to force opposing teams out of their conservative structures with any hope to kind of command momentum here, but points on the board uh, more than last season. I think in a league that seemingly plagued Wilson for the past couple of years, Payton really had to look to straighten, uh, strengthen the talent on the roster, go in a direction that will help elevate some of the weapons that Wilson still possesses. I have been talking long about tempering expectations for this season because I know Broncos country is holding out hopes that he still has what it takes for those thrilling deep balls to big body receivers, which is why I'm a proponent of keeping um, Cortland Sutton because I do think there is chemistry there, but it will include a physical threat to the run game. So signing P Ryan justifies the looming absence of Javante Williams and it adds depth to that backfield that will only elevate what Russell Wilson brings to the field. And as a member of the Denver Broncos, it feels like they're bought in on going in that direction. I've got high hopes. I just feel like this year is really going to test the theories on whether or not the Broncos can head in their current direction long-term. 2024 could be a much pivotal season, much more pivotal season than 2023 is currently shaping to be. Doesn't it seem to you as if all the early signs 
point to Sean Payton's philosophy being to get the most out of Russell Wilson, we need to see less of Russell Wilson. I mean, that's what you're looking at. When you sign someone like Piran who's good on first, second, and third downs, you're kind of hoping to justify uh, confusing opposing defenses, which really have been a true testament to what Russell Wilson still has left in the tank. I feel like with the more physical aspects to the run game, being able to block, getting those big body tight ends in, really leaning on the idea that they have to be a level of physicality that leaves Russell Wilson the ability to be less of a – a liability within the pocket. I think all signs are pointing to understanding his weaknesses and building around that. Whether or not it works, we'll see because we'll be evaluating it as we react every Monday to the Sean Payton Denver Broncos. But it feels like you almost had to do that. 2022 was abysmal, and they cannot repeat those same mistakes. Not with all the moves that they've made and the money they spent. It would be a very, very difficult pill to swallow for not only the Broncos fandom, but the ownership that has already pitched in $4.6 billion and would kind of like to see their program go a little better. She is Bree Maestas. Make sure you check her out, as she mentioned on Monday's Fan Cape, right here prior to this program and the Let's Talk Broncos podcast. You can find that right on Mile High Sports. Thanks for the time, Bree. Thanks, Bree. I appreciate Bri. you both. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All right. So, We'll, we'll talk to Bree about defense the next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was entirely but, an offensive But you know, I, we, we, we'll talk about defense and maybe even special we've teams. We've made the same the argument. Time. And she's right when trying to temper expectations. Realistically, Broncos fans, 2024 is when the rubble will hit the road regarding this team potentially becoming a contender of any sort. It's not going to happen this season. There's too many things that need to change. There's too many issues with the way the roster is built. There's a changeover. I keep in mind, it's not just the Sean Payton changeover, although that's certainly the biggest one. It's the fact that there has been no consistent vision on what a roster should look like because there's been so much turnover at the head coaching position. There's been a lot of square pegs and round holes, though. And that is not my fear so much as kind of a disturbing reminder of what hasn't worked in the past. And I I feel with Peyton, there's a philosophy on offense that's more akin to Pete Carroll, to be honest. I Although Carroll's a defensive-minded coach and gives over a lot of offensive and of course responsibility you know, to his assistants. Yeah. But I think Drew that, put that, big numbers. that we said this a few weeks ago, wasn't Russell Wilson trying to move away from these constraints when he came to Denver from Seattle? And now... You have seemingly a philosophy that will emphasize either one running back, two tight ends, or two tight ends, one running back. And no three wide receivers look, or at least a severe uh, depression in usage of the three wide receiver sets, which I understand makes some people ecstatic who are pounding over the last six, seven years pounding on the table for the Broncos to get out of such a clear emphasis on three wide receiver sets. The interesting part of that, we don't know yet. We'll have a better idea as the offseason goes along and maybe people have a chance to talk to him. But if there's one of the things that might be very good about what we've in the no news is good news department with this, it's that perhaps this was so much of a face plant for Russell Wilson 
that he looked in the mirror in this offseason and said, okay, you know what? Maybe what I've been best at in my career maybe is what I need to go back to doing. Maybe a combination of a rough season, a couple of injuries, uh, a couple of discussions with Sean Payton. Maybe that gives him an opportunity to look at this and say, hey, you know what? To get back to doing what I've turned into what was on track for a Hall of Fame career, maybe I need to, to maybe that's where I'm best. And, and this coach has gotten guys there before. Maybe we'll, and we'll see. We don't really know how Russell Wilson will react to this kind of adversity. I, we don't. We because don't he's know. never had it. Well, you know, when he won early in his career, it was he wasn't, somewhat he as, wasn't a, the key as, of the, as a background correct. vocalist. Right? Yes, that was, he, he, he was not the lead vocalist. The defense, Marshawn Lynch. Now, the defense chafed at the idea that even during those good times, Russell Wilson, because he was the quarterback, not, nothing personal, at least at that point, I don't think so much, as it was a sense that even when it's obvious that the quarterback isn't the main cog, the quarterback was getting the credit that the great quarterbacks get. Yeah. Eventually, it became personal. Mm -hmm. Over time, it became personal, and the major players on the defense simply disliked Russell Wilson intensely on a personal level because they thought, as many around the Broncos did last year, that he thought he was football royalty. Uh, And he became obviously a much more important part of the scene as the years went on in Seattle, uh, often played up to that. But just look at their playoff record after the Super Bowl loss in 2014 to the Patriots that effectively ended on a play in which Russell Wilson threw a pick. Uh, His relationship with his teammates was never the same, and they never got back to a Super Bowl after that. And it was a little bit reminiscent of Another relatively young team, the Chicago Bears in the mid-1980s, having a dominant season in 1985 and never even getting back to the Super Bowl, much less winning another one after that. We will obviously find out as that goes along. The draft just a couple of weeks away. Thanks to uh, Bree Mesas for joining us. Check her out on Monday right here on Mile High Sports Radio with the Fan Cave. The Denver Nuggets, or some of them, um, a motley collection of Denver Nuggets at least, took the Phoenix Suns to the limit last night. Does that mean anything? We'll talk about it next on Miley Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Oh, it's Friday. I made it. Congratulations. Good for you. Sun was out today. It's supposed to be out this weekend. I try to go. Uh, 80s next week. I try to go knock the uh, knock the little white ball around yep. the yard yeah, a little bit so. this this weekend. Be good. As I do. I, I wouldn't actually call it playing golf. I think I literally described my game accurately. I think I've played with you. You're not bad. You know. You're, you're you're no worse than I am. <laughs> well, that means is I, I, that that isn't that isn't terribly heartening. I know, but yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, it's fun. <laughs> That's the idea. Is go there a little bit. And hey, get if outside. You, you can break a hundred. Get a little vitamin D, and uh, you know, and, the, the, and even you if you don't shoot a hundred, or some better. You know, listen, get it's, it's fun. It's better than any alternative you could come up with. Enjoy uh, enjoy a little Colorado weather this weekend. You'll actually get it. The, you know what I'd like to see in golf, though? What? Honestly, I'd like to see what they've done in baseball 
apply to golf where he can play a round in three hours. Mm. And in baseball, we saw yesterday Coors Field of all places. You could play a baseball game. I know it was one to nothing, and that's not going to be typical. But you can play a baseball game in under two and a half hours. In fact, yesterday, two hours, 13 minutes. There is a little, the there's a little the creep, isn't there, like that? You think about like weekend, so weekend you, golf if you in Colorado. Play, if, you, if you can play uh, two to two and a half hour baseball games, you can play 18 holes of golf in three hours. Yeah. Boy. Maybe three and a half I don't, think, I don't think I've ever pulled that There's off. no excuse for a four hour, four and a half hour round. None. It, it, either you're too slow or the people in front of you are yeah. too slow. Yeah, be like me. I, you know, I shanked into the weeds. I will wander over the weeds, decide that it's probably in there with the rattlesnakes. You don't want to hit I'll it just out of there. Winner. Yeah, so it, might, yeah, it doesn't matter. Take your just penalty take, shot. And take your drop. Move on. Right. Yeah, exactly. So nobody wants to get bit by a rattlesnake. So you know, there's that. But the Nuggets find a way to hang with the Suns. The Suns have to play their starters the entire game to beat the Nuggets by four. Uh, they win one nineteen to one fifteen, and get the numbers for me. Aren't, uh, these are the numbers for me, Sandy. 41, 37, and 37. That's the number of minutes that Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker had to stay on the court last night in order to squeak by a Denver Nuggets team that did not play Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, Dontavious Caldwell-Pope. I mean, th- everybody sat. There were two points last night that were made on the telecast and and you just hinted at one of those two points that I thought okay you can argue that but there is a certain amount of uh, horse manure (laughs) contained within the argument Uh, uh, to address the point you just made Monty Williams would say I think with at least a sliver of justification those guys need to play together in a competitive basketball game. And he said, quite frankly, after three quarters in a tight game and a game, the nuggets would go on to lead at one point in the fourth quarter by six. He said, our spacing has been substandard. He used another word or phrase, but that was basically his point. Our spacing has not been good. Even though the Suns had scored a fair number of points, he didn't like the spacing. I assumed he liked their spacing a lot better in the fourth quarter. Uh, because all three guys got better in the fourth quarter, especially Booker. Uh, and it, I, I think you had a bit of a role reversal last night for Phoenix in that Paul was the scorer and Booker was the right. playmaker rather than the way it is usually, which is the other way around. Durant seemed to adjust to the fact that it wasn't Paul setting him up for any of his baskets until, I believe, late in the third quarter when Paul got his first assist. Right. And they were talking on the telecast about how he might go for the first time in his career, I think, an entire game without a single and assist. And he only finished with two. Right. And he and he finished with two. Um, so I, 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 I'm with you in saying that it, it, they wanted to win the game and they probably had to play Durant and Paul and Booker about five minutes apiece longer than would have been ideal. And I'm, I'm sure they expected after three quarters to have the game put away, and it would be at their leisure that they could uh, calculate, okay, here in the fourth quarter, we can either not play them at all or we can play them a little bit. We'll never have to play them a lot because the game will be over. Uh, but maybe they needed the work. Okay, so that, that can break in a couple of different directions. 
the other piece of horse maneuver, uh, manure, I'm sorry, it was a maneuver of sorts by Michael Malone in the production meeting telling Kevin Harlan and Reggie Miller, who do a great job, they're one of the best tandems going, uh, whether it's on college basketball or the NBA. Uh, feeding them the line that Bones Highland was traded because they wanted to get Christian Brown more playing time, uh-huh. which to me is 90% yeah. full spit. Right. Uh, because a month after they traded Bones Highland, Christian Brown was still not in the rotation. Now, I understand since over the last few weeks, maybe even close to a month, yeah. Christian Brown has been a part of the rotation. And last night he was in the starting lineup. And last night he played 33 minutes. And the only guy who played more on the Nuggets last night was Bruce Brown, who played 38. And he had 31.6 rebounds, four assists, and just a couple of turnovers. It was a plus five in a game they lost by four (laughs) points. Bruce Brown was the best player on the floor for the Denver Nuggets last night and deserved the minutes he got and probably needed them for the same reason that Durant and Paul and Booker needed to play together because his game has not been as good coming off the bench in recent weeks and months. And I think last night's game could be very helpful because it makes Bruce Brown feel like, if not a starter, and there are those who think he should be, even when everybody's healthy, that Porter should be coming off the bench. But in any case, it showed that you can give responsibility to Bruce Brown and he can carry it. And I think that was a boost to his confidence last night. And I thought Christian Brown at points in the third period was embarrassing Devin Booker at both ends of the floor, just embarrassing him, taking the ball away from him, defending him in such a way that Booker couldn't make a shot, and just abusing him when uh, Brown was on defense, dunking on him, making plays, 15 points, four rebounds, three assists, two steals. One was off Booker. He made Booker look silly. And Devin Booker is one of the two or three best guards in the NBA, and he made him look silly last night. Again, in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, Booker adjusted and became more effective. And uh, everybody among the starters may have gotten a little tired, too, in the fourth quarter because Reggie Jackson hasn't been playing at all. He played 30 minutes last night. Uh, DeAndre Jordan's not part of the rotation. He played 30 minutes last night. Uh, Watson played 26 minutes last night. Uh, Bruce Brown played 38 minutes. Even he may have gotten a little tired at the end, although it didn't show up uh, on the score sheet. And even some of the guys coming off the bench uh, weren't used to getting the minutes they got last night. But they shot 53% from the field, 35% from three, 83% at the line. They had nine offensive rebounds, and their assist-to-turnover ratio was 2-1. to Pretty good. And, again, if Malone hadn't been so stubborn all year long in utilizing some of these guys – maybe he wouldn't have to rest five starters or manage injuries or load manage or whatever they want to call it. And uh, maybe they would have clinched first place a lot sooner than they did too. Uh, So they could get these guys some extra minutes. But I I thought if Malone gets over his stubbornness and is willing to use some of these guys coming off the bench in the playoffs, at least three or four of them for about five minutes a game more than he's been using them, I think that helps the Nuggets, and it reduces the need to play Jokic 40 minutes a game, Murray 40 minutes a game, and Porter maybe 35 minutes a game in the playoffs. Because you've got guys who can be competent, even in a playoff setting, for 15, 20 minutes a game. The Nuggets have the number one seed. The Suns, with with only uh, two games remaining, are three ahead of the Clippers for five and three behind the Kings for a third. So they're going to be in front, too. This is, if the seeds hold, 
the second round matchup. The Nuggets at least planted some significant seeds of doubt in the Suns' heads in this game. And if nothing else... It was a good game psychologically because the Suns had to go... Full board. Right to the wall. Full full board to to win the game. a team that had none of its five starters. uh, I want to add very quickly, was George Carl right about A. Smith or was George Carl right about A. Smith? (laughs) Who was tremendous last night in 23 minutes. 11 points, three rebounds, six assists, a steal, just one turnover, and uh, a minus three in a game they lost by four. So he... I, I thought he was very good. Maybe again got a little tired because he's a guy all year hasn't played. But I thought George Carr was proven right in his assessment of Ish Smith, who again is another guy that Malone has buried, who should have been playing on a more regular basis. Nuggets will be at it tomorrow against Utah, Sunday against Sacramento, and that will finish up the regular season. Maybe you'll see a couple more chances to see this bench in action because you don't need him for any other reason. She was out at opening day yesterday. The Rockies, of course, had a great debut. We'll check in with Romy Bean next on My Life Sports. Late afternoon.